There are known tensions in the Bible, in Scripture. Tensions. Tensions between principles or truths that on the surface may appear to be at odds with one another. These are truths or principles that seem to be diametrically opposed to one another. Perhaps the most notable one in Scripture, and for sure the most argued over, is the apparent tension between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. On one side you have God, and he is completely sovereign, and by sovereign we mean in control of everything. And then on the other side, you have the free will of man, where man is free to decide what they want to do in their lives. Some would say you can't have both. You can't have the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. They just, they're too far apart. There's too much tension there for them both to exist Either God is sovereign and man doesn't have free will, or man has free will and God is not completely sovereign. Oh, wow. I've already thrown myself into one of the biggest theological debates ever in the first minute of the sermon. What is the answer? There's always an answer to these apparent tensions within the person of God. Here the answer lies somewhere within the type of knowledge that God has. The Bible tells us that he has foreknowledge. He foreknows every decision that man will make so that even knowing the the decisions that man will make in the free will that man has been given, that he still maintains his control and his sovereignty in the universe. Perhaps the next greatest tension in the Bible is the one that we will look at tonight. The tension between justice and mercy. Justice on one hand that demands that the, 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 the justice take place, that where there's a wrong, it must be righted. And mercy that on the other hand says, we're going to forgive the one that has done wrong. We're going to forgive that. And so this is a tremendous tension, a tension between justice and mercy. Can you have perfect justice and give mercy? Is that possible? Is God a God of justice? Or is he a God of mercy? Tonight we'll see the answer to this perplexing question So let's dive in and see how God administers perfect justice and mercy too. Mercy also. So let's let's dive in. Um, If you're taking notes, the first point is this, an outcry for justice. Let's look at Genesis 18. Let's pick it back up at verse 16. It says this. Then the men rose from there and looked towards Sodom. And Abram went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him, 
in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Last week, we talked about three visitors that came to visit Abraham. Three visitors showed up in Abraham's neighborhood. And you'll remember from our text last week that Abraham, looking out of his front door from his front porch, well, I'm not sure if he had a porch, but he, he, he looked out from the front of his property as what they would call the tent complex. And he looked out and he saw the three visitors coming and he, he perhaps recognized one of them. We talked about him recognizing at least one of them and ran out to them and bowed himself prostrate before them. And we talked about the identity of these three visitors. One we identified as the Lord himself. And we've talked about these theophanies in the Old Testament and specifically here in Genesis is the beginning of everything. And so we've talked about these theophanies and specifically a Christophany, which is an Old Testament sighting of the second person of the Trinity. And so we identified one of them as the Lord uh, and the other two as not the Lord or not the, not the, you know, the, the Trinity embodied, as some may have suggested, but two angels. And I said last week that we would see that come together as we made our way through the rest of 18 and into 19 because the two angels that were with the Lord have a specific uh, a commandment, a specific mandate uh, that they are to carry out. So here we see the three visitors, and they're done with the meal that Abraham and Sarah and, and the young man who made the veal barbecue and all that, you know, that's all over. And so now the three visitors are getting up to leave. And Abraham goes out with them to send them on their way. And that's exactly what you would do if the Lord came by to your house and had a lunch and had a meal and had, had a dinner when he said, okay. I got to go. <laughs> you know, of course, the Lord never leaves us or forsakes us, but physically he did leave uh, in this sense, embodied in, in this, whatever uh, type of, of body that, that, that this was, he gets up to leave. And so he goes out, Abraham goes out with them to send them on their way. And as they're going out on their way, the Lord says, should I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? There's something specifically that is on the agenda, something specific that the Lord is doing. And he says, should I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? And he says, well, since Abraham will be the, is the father of many nations, will be the father of many nations, I'll let him in on it. I'll let him in on this information. You see, Abraham had a relationship with the Lord. Abraham had this ongoing relationship with the Lord. The Lord appeared to him. The Lord showed up on his doorstep. The Lord shared a meal with him. The Lord entered into covenant with him. And the Lord revealed revelation to him based upon that, that relationship. In the New Testament, you come and you see Jesus. 
and he begins to teach in parables. And he taught in parables not to reveal the meaning of what he was saying, but actually to conceal it from the masses and to reveal it only to those who were actually interested in truly hearing what he had to say. That's an important thing that we come to when we study the parables in the New Testament. And so we can learn that there is something, there's something of revelation, there's something of a word that God wants to reveal to those specifically that he's entered into relationship, those that have responded to his call, those that have entered into relationship with him. And there's a layer of out there, those that aren't in relationship, that, don't, that aren't privy to that level of information. You say, well, why is God holding out? Well, the carnal man cannot understand the things of the Spirit, Paul says. And so the, those that have entered into relationship with God, those that have become alive in God, those that have been spiritually made alive in Christ, they're, they're privy to, we're privy to a, a layer of revelation that the world has not come into the knowledge of. It's, they're, they're welcome to have it. Amen? You're welcome to have it. And the deeper you grow in the knowledge of God, there's, there's revelation that he wants to give you. We were just talking about this on Wednesday night, about moving forward in our relationship with the Lord, not being satisfied with the knowledge we have, but comparing all things else in our lives compared to the knowledge of God as literal trash, as Paul says in, in the Philippians. Rubbish, right? And I want to know Christ. So the Lord says, I've known him and I want to reveal this to him. He's going to be the father of many nations. And he also gave another reason that he was going to reveal this revelation, this information to Abraham. He gave Abraham this revelation because he knew that Abraham would teach his children and family these things and teach them to live righteously and justly. Look at it in verse 19. He says, For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice and that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken. And so he gave this revelation to Abraham because he knew, because he knew Abraham. Wow, that's a, that's a, that's a grand statement right there to have it spoken in the scriptures that the Lord knew you. Wow, what an incredible statement that the Lord is making here. But also that there was, that there was an understanding that the Lord had that he could rely on Abraham, that he could trust Abraham with this revelation, not that he would just hold on to it, not that he would say, oh, wow, I'm like this special dude, you know? I'm this special guy and God's given me revelation. God's given me information. No, he could rely on Abraham because he knew and could rely on the fact that Abraham was going to pass in on the information to his children, to the people that were in his household, the people that were coming after him. And this is an important thing. God wants to reveal revelation to you, Christian. God wants to reveal things to you. God wants to bring things alive in the scriptures to you and speak to the center of your heart. And he doesn't want you to just hold on to that for yourself. He wants to be able to trust you that you'll relay that to your family. 
that you'll, that you'll bring your family under the knowledge of that revelation. Why? Because it's, it's for everlasting life. It's for, the, it's for the, the, the life that you've been given, and it's for the life that, that will hopefully be given to your kids and, and your children's children, and on and on and on as a perpetual legacy of relationship with the Lord, covenant with the Lord, and, and understanding of the revelation of God. And so the question really is, are we the type of people that God can rely on to transmit revelation to our children? Can, can God rely on you? You know, now, now a lot of people would say, well, I'm not a minister and I'm not a theologian of the word and I don't know the Greeks and the Hebrews and the, all the this and the that and I can't name the three Hebrew children that were standing in the fire that Mary Jo read earlier. It, what, what it's about is are you, you, you are a minister. We've talked about this in the, in the Philippian series too. Well, I'm not called to the ministry. Well, are you a Christian? Then you're called into the ministry because the, 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 the Lord has given gifts to the church for one purpose, to equip the body for the works of ministry. And so you have a ministry. And one of those ministries, in fact, if you have children, it's your main ministry is delivering to them the word of God. Amen. Delivering to them the revelation of God. Delivering to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and look at the way that the Lord puts that. Back in verse 19, he says, For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord. And again, that Lord there is Yahweh, Yahweh God that they keep the way of Yahweh to do righteousness and justice. And so we have an awesome responsibility, an awesome responsibility. I'm actually reminded right now as I'm teaching of a message that I spoke on Mother's Day many years ago, and it was about handling the glorious articles of God. <laughs> and there was this text in the Old Testament about the whole, how you were to handle the, 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 the furniture of the tabernacle, and there was an exact way to do it. And, 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 and you have been given an awesome responsibility to handle, to receive and to handle the glorious articles of God, none other than his word. None other than his word. You know, there was a table in the tabernacle where they would put loaves of bread on it, right? You've been given bread, the bread of the word of God, to, to lay out on a table, to give out to your family, to those around you. And what an awesome responsibility that it is. And I like how it even says that in the New King James, that he would command his children not in a, you know, see, see, this is where, you know, some people might read that and go, well, see, yeah, that's what my parents did. They commanded and they shook their fist and shook their hand and wagged their thing. No, 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 not in that way. In a way that like, hey, hey guys, come here. You got to check this out. This is super cool. This is, you know, my, my kids know when I come into some like new thing and I'm like, hey guys, listen to this. And they're like, dad, what? <laughs> you know, and, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm just going to town on, on delivering all this stuff. And man, there's so much that we can be excited about, and, and, and I'm not going to belittle any of it and make that point, but we should be excited about the revelation of God's word. Amen? If we're going to get excited about anything in this lifetime, we should be getting excited about the, 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 the revelation and the knowledge of God and his word. So parents, you have a ministry. 
Your ministry is to command your children in the ways of the Lord, that they would know righteousness, that they would know justice. So then what does the Lord do? The Lord reveals his plan. I'm going down to Sodom. There is an outcry against the city. The city is very grave. This is what the Lord says. The the sin of the city is very grave. I'm going to tackle another difficult thing right now. (laughs) This is the night for me to tackle. Some nights are easy. Some nights are tougher. As you're teaching through the word, and this is the whole counsel of God, and as Paul told the Ephesian elders when he stood on the beach of Miletus, and he said, I have not shunned, I am innocent of the blood of all men because I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. What's that? Innocent of the blood of all men because I did not think, oh, well, they can't handle this or this is too harsh or this is so against the culture or this is something that the modern mind cannot understand. This is either the word of God or it's not the word of God. We're either like the Thessalonican believers and we can receive it for what it is, in truth, the word of God, and it can become effectual in our lives and our families and in our nation. And so, here we go. Are all sins the same? That's the question. Are all sins the same? Pastor and theologian John Piper began to tackle the question this way. He said, I've often heard it said that all sins are equal before God. But this just doesn't seem right. What would you say? I've heard that too, and the reason people have said this is because of James 2.10, where it says, if you have committed one sin, you are guilty of all, which seems to mean that whether a small sin or a big sin, I'm totally guilty of all the commandments. Therefore, every sin is equally damning to me. So I think the first part of understanding and looking at the question, are all sins the same? It's that last point that he just said. There is a aspect of sin, of any sin, that would be grave enough to separate us from the Lord in terms of sin being a separating factor. Okay, so even if it was, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there is even in that act of disobedience and a simple eating of the fruit that was enough to bring sin into the world. So is a sin of disobedience like that, is, 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 there, is, is that sin, in the context of human living, is, is that sin of, of equal uh, proportion or equal graveness to all the other sins that one could commit? Another theologian, J.I. Packer, uh, tackled it this way. He said, Scripture shows that in God's estimate, some sins are worse and bring greater guilt than others, and that some sins do us more damage. Moses rated the golden calf debacle a great sin. Exodus 32.30. Ezekiel, in his horrific allegory, says that Ohalah, of Samaria had ruined herself by unfaithfulness to God and became more corrupt in her lust and her whoring, which was worse than that of her sister. 
What's that? Worse than that of her sister. John distinguishes sins that do and do not inevitably lead to death. First John 5.16, picking up Jesus' warning about the unforgivable sin. So evidently there is a sin that is the gravest of them all. The unforgivable sin, right? Of, of blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. So the Lord here in our text tells us, he says, I'm going down to Sodom because their sin, the sin of the city is very grave. Very grave. Grave? Very grave. Evidently, the graveness of the sin necessitated a trip by the Lord with two angels to investigate the situation, to see if this grave sin, the outcry against the city that had come before him as the Lord. Now you say, wait a second. If you look at that last part of the passage where he says, verse 21, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, I will know. Well, if you're kind of a thinking Christian and you read that, it kind of like some bells go off and, you know, question marks fly. Because you ask yourself, now, wait a second, if this is the Lord, why does he need to take a trip to Sodom? Doesn't he already know that it's bad? He's already got, he's, he's, he's omniscient. He has foreknowledge. He actually knew it beforehand. Why does he need to take a road trip with two angels and go down to investigate? I found this in Matthew Henry's commentary, and I thought it was the best treatment of this. He said this, of on God investigating the sin of Sodom. He said, not as if there were anything concerning which God is in doubt or in the dark, but he is pleased thus to express himself after the manner of men, to show the incontestable equity of all of his judicial proceedings, Men are apt to suggest that his way is not equal, but let them know that his judgments are the result of an eternal counsel and are never rash or sudden resolves. So there are some things that we can actually even see in the Lord going with the angels, going to investigate Sodom and Gomorrah, the very grave sin, and to see. You know, he, 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 he could have... He could have, from his throne on high, just said, done with it all. Perfect justice. And there would be no outcry that would be even worth listening to in the face of the sin committed. Because God is a completely holy God. Amen? He's completely holy and just but he goes out of his way to demonstrate to us who are of finite understanding, finite not only in our capabilities, but finite in time. I mean, to imagine God making judgment and passing justice, just judgment that will stand as perfect justice for all eternity, 
Now that's a level of justice that most people don't think about when they march for justice yeah. or kneel for justice. There's a level of justice that we don't know anything about. Right. And it's a justice of all eternity. So I think the commentator rightly says that when the Lord himself goes and shows that effort to say, look, I'm going to actually go down and do some investigation myself to see whether it is as the outcry has come up before me. So, so there's a cry for justice that has, come up, that has come up to the throne, to the Lord, against Sodom and Gomorrah. And what we know is that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is a very grave sin. It's, it's a sin that is very grave. But then there's a case, so, that, so that's the outcry for justice. Now we're going to flip the tables, flip the, pay, flip the verse here, keep reading and see that there's a case for mercy. Let's pick it up, verse 22. It says this, Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Then Abraham answered and said, Indeed, now I who am but dust and ashes have taken it up on myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose that there were five less than the 50 righteous. Would you destroy all the city for the lack of five? I mean, you said you wouldn't destroy it if you found 50. I mean, what if there were five less, Lord? So he said, if I find there 45, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose that there should be 40 found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of 40. Then he said, let the Lord, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, indeed, now I have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak but once more. Suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned 
to his place. So we have a cry for justice, an outcry for justice that has come before the Lord, the grave sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham, who, who is, is, is the Lord's, in relationship with the Lord. He speaks with the Lord, and he, and he makes this case for mercy. He, Abraham finds out that the Lord's intentions, that the intention is to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of their grave sin. It's, it's that grave that the Lord has the intention of destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. So what does Abraham do? He makes the case to the Lord to have mercy. He first starts off with this question, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Knowing that his, Lot, his nephew Lot and his family are there in Sodom. He says, would you destroy the, the righteous with the wicked? And then he reminds the Lord of who he is. Wait, you're the judge of all the earth. You're righteous, you're just. Would you do this? Would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Wait a second, you're the, you're the righteous judge of all the earth. And he reminds the Lord of who he is. Now you say, that's pretty bold right there. Lord, the omnipotent, omniscient, the one who created the world, the one who spoke it all into being, the one who holds it, all the things in, in him consist. I'm, gonna re- I'm going to come to you and remind you of who you are. And you know what? I don't think the Lord is offended. I think the Lord actually likes the fact that Abraham knows that he's the judge of all the earth. There's one judge of all the earth, and you're it, God. Mm -hmm. Good for you. Good for you. You, Good for you that you know that. Would you slay the, the, the righteous with the wicked? Abraham here describes the destroying of the righteous with the wicked as kind of an as, as irreconcilable, irreconcilable with the justice of God. How, how could you do this if you are the just judge of the, of the earth? So what does God do? He says, verse 26, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. So, so Lord, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna save the city. If you go there and you find 50 righteous, you're going to save the city. So Abraham's wheels are spinning now. The principle, the principle that there's mercy to be had has been established. There's mercy to be had, and that principle has been established. God will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. Now it's just a matter of numbers. And how, 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 how can we get this number down? How can we, 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 we enter into kind of a negotiation, like a Middle Eastern negotiation? Abraham and Jesus, here they are. They're going, here's the negotiation. Lord, if, there, if there's five less, Certainly you would save it for 45. Sure, I'll do it for 40. I'll save the city for 45. Uh, uh, Lord, excuse me, excuse me. How about 40? 40? 
Yeah, I'll save it for 40. And then he gets bold. The first two, he took down five. I don't know. I don't think this is an agreement with like, like good um, tact, like negotiating tactics. Don't you go you know, far the first time and then it gets tighter? He went a little bit and a little bit and he said, all right, I got him down to 40. Lord, how about 30? He doubled him up. He doubled up on the Lord in the negotiation. I mean, this is not, you know, pawn stars here type of negotiation. This is Abraham and Jesus, you know. And, and then he goes again and he says, 20, 20. And then he says, Lord, Lord, just, just hear me out one last time. 10, 10. Would you spare the city for 10 righteous? A whole city of grave sin and corruption. Would you, would you spare it for 10 righteous? And the Lord said, yes, I'll save it for 10. I'll save it for 10 righteous. This really demonstrates at least a, a, an opening picture of the mercy of God. Here he, he's come down. He's come down to do, do the investigation. He's actually relayed the information to Abraham. Here's, here's what's going to go down, but I'm first going to go down and investigate to see if it's right and to show everybody that I'm totally above board and I get the whole thing. And, you know, it always it, it amazes me that somehow man on the earth is going to wag their finger at a holy, eternal God and say, you're not just, as if we begin to understand eternal justice. But God says, God goes through the whole negotiation with him. I'll save it for 10. The problem was, as we'll find out in the next chapter, not tonight, but when we get into chapter 19, the problem is that they, that they didn't find 10. <laughs> he, got them all the way to he got them all the way down to 10, but when they get there, they actually don't find 10. There's like four, and then that turns into three, <laughs> as we'll soon see next week. <laughs> so the, the question still remains from the opening. How can we reconcile? <coughs> How can we reconcile the tension between justice and mercy? Here there's an outcry for justice, and here's a call for mercy. On one hand, we see God wanting to act in absolute justice, perfect justice, and over here we see him in the negotiation having mercy, coming all the way down to saying, hey, I will literally save the city from destruction for 10 righteous in the city. So the question still remains. There is a search to deal with four absolutes, in the, in the world. What are they? The evil of man, the justice of God, the love of God, and the forgiveness of God. Evil, justice, love, and forgiveness. Now, if you look at forgiveness and justice, that's like saying just like justice and mercy, right? And love 
kind of goes along with like, you know, hey, I really love you, so I want to forgive you. The love kind of leads to the forgiveness. But then you have this evil of man that kind of demands a righteous judgment. You have the existence of evil, which is self-evident. You have this need of an absolute justice. And then there's perfect love, the ideal of perfect love. And then there's forgiveness. And here's the question. Do you know the one place in human history where these four absolutes converged? The one place that they all converged was on a hill called Calvary. As Jesus hung on the cross. On a hill called Calvary. It's a place where the love of God against the evil of man met the justice that God knew had to be paid. And he did it through his son and he offered forgiveness. I mean, even from the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. This sets Christ, it sets Christianity completely in another category all by itself compared to every philosophy of man, every religion that has ever existed over here, Christ and Christianity is in a class by itself because what God did through his son on the cross administered perfect justice, demonstrated his perfect love, dealt with the evil, of, the ultimate evil of mankind, and offered forgiveness all in one event, in one place. And those things, it, it's an incredible, incredible thing. So the question from the beginning is, can you have justice and mercy? And the Lord, in his great mind and in his genius had a plan to deal with it all now we'll find out next week that again that they didn't have they didn't find the 10 to save the city and we'll get into that a little bit more next week but for tonight I think the message is clear that we serve a God of justice and mercy and that he doesn't give up on either principle, but that in a way found only in him and what he's done for us, that he converges those things into one and resolves a tension that in our own human thinking and capacity, we could never resolve. But in him, in his person, in the work of Christ, he resolves that tension. And, and I am so thankful for what the Lord has done on the cross.